it's another episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. And what a summer it is so far, as the nation struggles through a bushfire season made worse by climate change. Now, it's just me in the studio today, so I'm going to take the time to take a bit of a look at climate change and to replay a couple of stories that were highlights from the past year. First up, I'm going to share with you something that I recently wrote for a colleague who was facing the prospect of arguing with relatives over the holidays about climate change. And I was asked, what does science say? And although that's a very, very, very big question, I'm going to touch on some of the main points about why scientists know what's happening. And then we have Claire from back in December, when it's hard to believe we were facing many of the same impacts from fire then, but only on a smaller scale. One of those impacts was the devastation of the koala population. So Claire tells us about some scientists' plans to preserve the species. And finally, continuing his series on 2019's International Year of the Periodic Table, Stu tells us all about tellurium and selenium, two elements that are significant for producing solar cells. So that's all to come, so on with the show. Okay, so what do we know about climate change? Now for starters, global warming is predicted by basic physics. The theory was first proposed in 1896 by the Swedish scientist Svante Arrhenius, which was based on the greenhouse effect that was identified in the 1850s by the British scientist John Tyndall. Now, you can find out details of the history of climate science from the American Institute of Physics website. Now, of course, when uh, Arrhenius and Tyndall and, and the like, when they first proposed these theories, not everyone agreed with them. And you'll hear many of the, um, the objections, the, the theoretical objections that were expressed then, repeated today by climate sceptics. Now, although these objections have long since been answered, the best way to resolve a scientific dispute is with experimental data. In this case, it's a so-called natural experiment, which is admittedly an uncontrolled natural experiment in which we kept releasing greenhouse gases for another 120 years to see what would happen. And what happened? Well, the planet warmed as predicted by the theory. But while we're talking about physics... um, As you may know, I myself am a physicist, and like many physicists, when I first heard about global warming, I compared it to other things that we know. Now, a good comparison is the planet Venus, which is in many ways Earth's twin, except that its atmosphere is over 90 times thicker and is made up of 96.5% carbon dioxide. As a result of this, the average surface temperature on Venus is 462 degrees Celsius, which is hotter than the closest planet to the Sun, which is Mercury, and it's hot enough to melt lead. So the idea that more carbon dioxide in Earth's atmosphere will lead to higher temperatures seems pretty obvious. But another way of looking at it is through time rather than space. Now, much of the coal that we're burning today was laid down in the Carboniferous period, which is 360 to 300 million years ago, for context that is well before the dinosaurs were on the scene. Now, this coal came from carbon dioxide that was removed from the atmosphere by the vast rainforests of the time. Now, because we're putting that carbon back into the atmosphere, it's worth looking at what the temperature was before it was sequestered. Now, at the start of the Carboniferous period, the average Earth temperature was about 20 degrees Celsius, compared to about 15 degrees Celsius today. By the end of that period, it had gone down to 12 degrees Celsius, which led to an ice age and the collapse of all those rainforests. 
Now, this was a long, long time ago. There have been many other factors that have probably changed since then, such as, you know, things like the distribution of the continents, the orbit of the Earth. But still, it is an interesting and disturbing comparison to look at what the temperature was before and after the Carboniferous. But back to the first point, though. We're saying that the, the temperature warmed um, as predicted by theory, but are we sure that it really has warmed in the past couple of centuries? Now, the critics say there's been selective use of temperature records or that they've been manipulated somehow to show their, um, the warming effect. In 2010, this led a bunch of scientists to start the Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Study, uh, which can be found at berkeleyearth.org. It's set out to reanalyze all the temperature records in the world. Perhaps most interestingly, the founder, Richard Muller, was a climate sceptic who'd questioned previous temperature studies. However, their results found the same warming trend as the official record, and subsequently, the Berkeley Earth team concluded that it was almost entirely due to human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. They even said that the IPCC, that's the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, had understated the connection. But just for fun, I like to just, you know, do a really unscientific thing, uh, which is to just say, look at a single location that should have a reliable temperature record and see what that says. So, for instance, Wilson's Promontory in Victoria, uh, on the coast, on the southern coast of Victoria, has had a weather station at the lighthouse since the 1870s. It is remote enough that there shouldn't be an effect from urbanisation, and there is no record over that time of the station having been moved. You can find the unadjusted temperature data from the Bureau of Meteorology website, and it's pretty easy to graph the average daily maximum temperature per decade. Uh, The result is pretty clear. There's basically nearly a one degree warming over over the past century. Now, the strength of the evidence is why there is a scientific consensus, which is commonly measured as 97% of climate scientists agreeing that the planet is warming due to human activities. Now, one of the most quoted papers measuring this consensus was by John Cook, who, full disclosure, I should say I know from my honours physics class at the University of Queensland. His website, scepticalscience.com, is a great climate change resource, but it probably won't convince anyone as people who deny the consensus really don't like John Cook and his website. And, of course, the 97% figure still leaves up to 3% of scientists who disagree, although you'll find outliers in any field. For science in general, 97% is a pretty high number. So accordingly, when it comes to research involving climate change, you don't see any discussion about whether or not it's real. Most of the studies that come up are trying to look at the effects of climate change. You see a lot of people measuring how it affects natural systems, such as fish moving out of range, plants flaring earlier, and species going extinct. And we have done plenty of these stories on Lost in Science. Of course, you could explain the consensus by saying there's a conspiracy of scientists, and many people do end up saying that. Now, that's a claim that's difficult, maybe even impossible to disprove. One of the problems with conspiracy theories is that any evidence against them can be interpreted as evidence of how powerful the conspiracy is. And once you go down that path, it's very difficult to turn back. Also, me being a scientist spreading evidence of climate change, that would mean I'm in on the conspiracy too. So you probably couldn't believe what I'm saying anyway. But look, I don't really expect um, this science to convince many people. Um, There's been a lot of research on communicating climate change and why people do or don't accept the scientific consensus. Now, one of the leaders in the field is Dan Cahan from Yale University, and he has shown that it's not about scientific knowledge or education, um, as instead those with the best scientific literacy, those who know the most about the science, are the most polarised in their opinions. What causes people to follow one idea or the other is about political tribalism and group identity. 
Now, this cuts both ways, as often people will support the science without understanding what it really means, which, you know, maybe isn't a problem as long as they come to the right conclusion. But you need to know that you come to the right conclusion. So I think you do need to keep up across the research. You need to examine the skeptical claims and you need to seek out reliable resources. Uh, And hopefully, by listening to Lost in Science and some of the evidence given here today, you will have some of those resources. Science. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. So it's a pretty devastating time in New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT at the moment. There are over 80 fires burning, um, over 200 million hectares with a lot of those fires, actually the majority of those fires burning out of control. Um, there's been loss of life, hundreds of houses have burnt and um, parts of the country are burning at, that have been rainforest for thousands of years. So it's it's really concerning and really devastating and um, is leaving most of the states in a thick smog of smoke as well. But one particular species has been hit especially hard, the koalas of the north coast of Australia. So it's estimated that over 2,000 koalas have perished in the fires of the mid-north coast of Australia, so around Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie Way. Um, with an estimated one-third of the total koala habitat lost to fire. So we're talking quite big um, big swathes of koala land being lost. So koalas can only eat certain eucalyptus leaves. Isn't that, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certain eucalypt leaves. Uh, I think there's something like around, f- don't quote me on this, Stu, but around 15 or so species of, of eucalypt. But they but, certainly can't live just anywhere. Yeah, they have to be around... Yeah. Plants they can actually digest, and a yep. lot of them sounds like have burnt. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, if the fire's going through, the koalas are in the trees. I mean, well, yeah, that's that right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're really vulnerable to injury by bushfires. Yeah, they're um, slow moving compared to you know compared to their hopping and um, running sort mm. of cousins, and kind of like marsupial cousins, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, indeed. Um, and the heat burns their paws, their fur. Um, and then you've got superheated air that can cause internal damage um, to their lungs. And as you said, you know, they're in the canopy and that's where the fire travels. So um, it, that can be really devastating to them as well. So there's a New South Wales Upper House inquiry into the state and management of the koala populations. And it's putting some of the conservation efforts into sharp, fo- sharp focus and sort of reevaluating, okay, what's next? How are we going to protect what we've got left? Um, wildlife groups and carers at the moment, you know, it's becoming apparent that they're grossly underfunded and unprepared to manage um, the remaining koalas in places like the Blue Mountains and the Mid-North Coast. And um, some some protocols and processes and future plans really need to be put into effect now. Um, there's even been some reporting around these fires that the koala populations are so badly 
um, affected and destroyed that the species um, is functionally extinct. That's what's being reported anyway, um, So, uh, i.e. the number of koalas are so low that a viable population um, is is pretty much functionally extinct. They're not going to be able to survive um, by the fact that they don't have the genetics necessary so right. to reduced, survive long term. Reduce the genetic diversity to such a point that it may not be able to recover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although a lot of scientists are saying this is not necessarily right. true, but a question around how these uh, fragmented populations are going to be managed into the future um, is certainly now of the utmost importance. Yeah. So not functionally extinct, but how are we going to manage them into the future? But there are there are koalas elsewhere in Australia though as well. There certainly are. Are yeah. they the same species, or would you be able to, you know, move them around? Yeah, well, that's that's one of the interesting conversations now. It's like, well, how are we going to maximise the genetic yep. um, potential of the remaining koalas in the whole of Australia? So, uh, yeah, a conversation um, piece was published on December ten by researchers um, who from different areas of conservation around the east coast of Australia and it highlighted the uh, importance of safeguarding the genetic diversity of koalas and reducing the risk of inbreeding, um, which is what sort of happens when you have really small populations of um, of koalas or any sort of species and you get those genetic bottlenecks. So mm. going from large numbers of a species and then you get a really small number and then they breed out from there but you still have low genetic diversity. Um, So these scientists are suggesting we should take a lesson from the botanical gardens, take a lesson from um, botanists, indeed, who routinely freeze genetic material of seed banks um, and start um, routinely collecting and freezing genetic materials from koalas. So koala sperm and koala eggs and embryos to make sure that we are preserving genetic diversity ahead of any future population crashes, which is an interesting way forward. It is. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, you know, when you've got fires leading to isolated populations of koalas, um, you might have genetic bottlenecks, but if you've got – if you're maintaining um, as much genetic diversity as possible, then hopefully you're going to be able to – um, repopulate those. So those, those sort of areas. things could be used for like um, like artificial insemination, that kind of stuff. We're not talking about, say, you know, cryogenics freezing and hoping some future technology will be able to resurrect koalas. We're actually, pre- you know, freezing reproductive material that then can be used with known techniques. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting point because um, the authors are saying it's not going to be as easy as freezing seeds. Obviously, um, there are some artificial reproduction methods for koalas and marsupials generally. And the area is really developing quite quickly. For example, scientists have collected uh, fresh sperm and artificially inseminated zoo koalas, um, which has resulted in a live birth um, of a koala. But uh, the technology is lagging in terms of being able to preserve, um, you know, uh, eggs and sperm long term in a in a freezer, so that technology is not quite there yet. Right. Um, so some of the parts of the process exist, um, but other parts are sort of like, okay, well, we need to do more. We need to sort of start channeling our funds into this. Um, so that's quite interesting um, and potentially a way forward to preserve the koalas that are left. And considering there has seemed to be a really sort of huge outpouring of community. Um, 
community you know, worry and, and, and concern about the future of the koala, um, which has resulted in over a million dollars being raised for Port Macquarie Koala Hospital, maybe, um, maybe we can see some sort of centres of um, scientific research for future, um, future koala gametes being frozen um, to protect the future of our most beloved koala. I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. Now, there are a lot of elements in the periodic table, uh, and we've been covering some of them this year. Oh, Stu, I think we might have covered... Most of them. Yeah, there's this been year. like there's, what you've done a lot of stories on the periodic table. It of feels like there's been a lot of them. <laughs> there's really there's been a few, but oh, like, we haven't there even, been enough. We haven't gone even through half of the elements, and uh, you know, look, a lot of the elements are lesser known elements. There's some <laughs> very important ones, but probably only about twenty or so are important for life on Earth. The rest of them are just around. <laughs> I want to talk to, about two today that. Uh, probably less known than others, but there's some interesting things about them that might make them uh, more interesting in the future. So the first one is tellurium, which is a, well, it used to be a relatively cheap element. It used to sell for about $30 a kilo on the open elements market. Oh, tellurium. That, are there tellurium stocks we can buy now, tellurium futures? Well, there probably are. Um, at the moment, so so in the year 2000, it was about $30 a kilogram in US dollars. Now it's over $200 a kilogram. And estimates of the supply in the next five years are that it won't be able to meet demand and prices are likely to go higher. So this is going to be a sought-after commodity. Oh, funny I'd bought some tellurium back in the early if days. Only, if yeah. only you had. So it's used for high-tech uh, purposes, like building X-ray detectors, uh, improving refraction in glass-based fiber optic cables. Ooh, See, who I, doesn't I, want to get into yeah, that I'd, industry? I'd like to do, I'd like to do that. Um, <laughs> but it's also used for things like coloring ceramics. So I think the people who use it for coloring ceramics color. might not actually make them go red. Uh, probably right, probably okay. won't be able to compete they with might the, be the priced, high-tech market. Priced out of the market. They might be because uh, what they're actually what it's actually really useful for is um, its use in high-efficiency solar panel production. So right. it's a really useful for building high efficiency oh, solar panels okay. over other elements that and you could use. And we're going to want more and more of solar we, panels as a growing market. We would want more and more. Um, so the actual stuff itself is it has similar chemical properties to sulfur, which is there's a lot more sulfur. So some of the things it can do is a substitute for sulfur, but it's better at doing those things than sulfur is. Could I buy some sulfur and tell people it's tellurium and make a, they, a can of it tellurium? They kind of look different. Mm. So, nice but, but also, Chris. yeah, also some microbes use it in place of sulfur for making amino acids. So there's a lot of amino acids with sulfur in them. Some microbes go, ha, we're not going to use sulfur. We're going to use this right. fancy tellurium instead. Um, many relatively common bacteria, such as one called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, oh. use tellurium in place of sulfur in their metabolism. And guess what that does? It makes, makes them, them really rich. Makes them really <laughs> toxic. Oh, right. To plants and animals, yeah, okay. and that is actually also their absorption of tellurium makes them potentially deadly to 
to animals and, and plants. Um, Sounds like quite an advantage. Well, yeah, I guess if you're a microbe and you want to take over the world, that's what you should do. Um, if humans are exposed to high concentrations of tellurium, one of the symptoms is garlic breath. People get garlic breath when they have tellurium poisoning. Okay, that's not the only way you get garlic breath, people. Don't no, worry, you don't not have everyone. tellurium poisoning if you have eaten a lot of garlic, right? But it's, if you've eaten a lot of tellurium, though, it's, that it's, could be the reason why you have garlic breath. It's basically due to how it's metabolized in the human body. It binds up with sulfur and, and it comes out smelling like garlic. That's so weird. Yeah, and guess where? It was discovered in 1782. Transylvania. Yes. Oh! <gasps> Isn't that amazing? So it probably repelled vampires in Transylvania. These people were getting tellurium poisoning, <laughs> and it kept the vampires away long enough that they could discover tellurium or something. That's probably it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's how it worked. Uh, it was named tellurium by an Austrian whose name was Martin Heinrich Klaproth in 1798 from the Latin word for earth, which is tellus. Tell okay. us more, well, Stu. Yeah, it's, tell you what? Tell us. I'll tell you what. The Latin word for earth. Yes. Tell us. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't want to tell oh, you. I all right, okay, all right. Look, three stooges. Tellurium. Two, two, two stooges over here. Yeah, there's only two stooges in this room. So around 20 years later, another element was discovered that had similar properties to tellurium, and it was named after the Greek word for the moon, which is, what is it, Chris? Selenia. Selena? Selena. 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 Yeah. So selenium, uh, someone said, hey, this chemical's just like tellurium. It has all these similar properties. And because tellurium was named after the earth, he decided he would name it after the moon. It's beautiful. It is. Oh. It, just a, a matching pair. Um, so guess where selenium appears in the periodic table? Um, directly below tellurium? No, directly above tellurium <laughs> and directly and below like sulfur. Sulfur. So they have very similar properties and, and they get used interchangeably by a lot of living things as a result. Um, so selenium is very common in the ocean, apparently, but less common on land. So a lot of sea-based organisms have higher requirements for selenium than terrestrial organisms because there's less selenium on the land. So everything that's evolved on the land doesn't need much selenium, but everything that lives in the ocean has always had it there, so it uses lots of it. But some land plants have a high requirement for selenium as a nutrient, so you can actually spot those plants and they can figure out where there's selenium deposits by looking at the plants. Such growing. as? Oh, nothing that you'd actually know because they only grow in places <laughs> high in selenium. A lot of them are in South America and oh, okay. places like that. Um, are there high selenium deposits There in are South high America? selenium deposits in South America. The Brazil nut, for example, <gasps> is oh. the food highest in selenium. But only if it's grown in an area with high soil availability of selenium. If you grow it in a tellurium area, will it? I don't think it substitutes. No, no. So you won't get the garlic breath from the Brazil nuts potentially. However, um, some people do take selenium as a dietary supplement, though most people get enough from eating a balanced diet. But they've also shown positive effects from taking selenium supplements in patients suffering Hashimoto's disease. Which What's that? It attacks the uh, the thyroid cells in people's bodies, and the selenium prevents the immune system from attacking the thyroid cells by somehow protecting them. They're not entirely mm. sure, but they've found some positive results from people with low selenium, giving them higher selenium, and it makes them better. I'm pretty certain, though, from things I've read about like supplementation, that selenium is one of those ones that 
uh, if you don't have a deficiency, it's actually unsafe to take large amounts of it. Yeah, you shouldn't. That's no one's advising that anyone yeah, yeah, should yeah. take selenium supplements um, because, and one of the other things too, it does give you that same garlic breath One's symptom time. over time. So that's uh, a weird thing. Other things selenium has been used for uh, is making semiconductors for electronics, but mostly that's been replaced by silicon, which it used to be used instead of silicon. Now we've got better supplies of silicon, so we use that instead. Um, but they have made lithium selenium batteries, which are more efficient than lithium sulfur batteries, which is cheaper to make because sulfur's cheaper. Um and even though it is considered a trace element, it can cause toxicity, as I said. Uh, it's pretty unusual for people to get a selenium deficiency, though, unless there's something else going on, So, which is what the Hashimoto's thing is. Now, one other use for selenium, and I picked this up from watching a really, really bad movie called Evolution back in uh, with David Duchovny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which totally misrepresented how evolution worked. But one of the things that they came up with was selenium because selenium was, you know, toxic to these weird life forms or something like that. But he figured it out because selenium is an ingredient in anti-dandruff shampoo. And so dandruff can be caused by all sorts of things, uh, including in some cases a yeast that grows on people's scalps and it makes the skin all dry and flaky. Um, so selenium, some research that I recently dug up, may have an effect in helping people with their dandruff, uh, but only if it's caused by this fungus. And there are about a thousand other causes of dandruff. So the the selenium additives in anti-dandruff shampoo might not be the most effective way to treat your dandruff. But those are just two elements which I think in the future may be actually more important. Um, but you may also have never heard of them before. And that is it for this episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Lost in Science, of course, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. And of course, you can find us on a podcasting app if you have the opportunity to give us a rating and review on such an app well please do so it will help lift us up in the search rankings so other people can find us or of course you can also listen to us on the radio where same time every week Stu, claire and chris get lost in science
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.